If you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. you this morning together. We always set aside a portion of our time, a great portion of our time, to read and to declare the truth of your word. We know, Lord, that it honors you when we focus on your word, when we contemplate it, when we seek to understand it, and then with all of that, seek to use it in our lives, to apply it to our living we ask you would help us with that. That, Lord, we would desire to do that. That we'd be motivated to do that. That, Lord, as we go through your word, if sin is exposed in our life, that we would repent. That we seek to adopt the ways of the word. Knowing, Lord, that even though it does honor you and we desire to do that, we also know, Lord, that by adopting your word in our lives we will have greater joy, a greater sense of satisfaction, an increased love for life and for others. And so, Father, the benefits for us are immense, and we're grateful for that. And so, as we always do, Lord, we ask that you bless our time now in your word. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Second Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Again, remember the larger context of all that we've been going through. Once again, Paul really has been, in a sense, defending himself against those who have moved against him. He's not doing so out of arrogance because he wants to be the boss or stay in control or even necessarily his focus is not to save his reputation. But he understands the motive of these false teachers. Their desire is to come in and to kind of usurp his place so they can have the place of influence over these individuals and they will lead them away from God. They will lead them away from the truth. And Paul is very concerned about that. You see, the false teachers, if they were going to come in the city of Corinth and if they were going to get a hearing for their false gospel, they were going to have to destroy the integrity of Paul. That's what they were going to have to do. And so they had to get the people to lose confidence in Paul because Paul was their teacher. They were grateful to Paul. They were going to bring an error. They were going to bring an error that was contrary to what Paul taught. So again, in order to be heard, they had to destroy Paul's reputation. They had to destroy his integrity. So they had accused Paul of several things, as we've seen. They accused Paul of ministering in the power of his flesh and that he was insincere, that he had a secret agenda, 
that he was in essence a liar and they had kind of used the example of him changing his mind on something and said, see, he lied. They said he was a deceiver, that he had perverted or had distorted the scripture and that he was seeking personal glory and that he even didn't deserve to be listed among the apostles. And they were fairly effective. They had convinced some of the people there in Corinth, in that congregation, that Paul was not a man of honesty, that he was not a man of sincerity and genuineness and, again, integrity. And so their idea, again, was they destroy Paul's integrity, they could replace him, and that's why it's so important to Paul to maintain his integrity. Not for his sake, but really for God's sake and for the sake of the church and the sake of the witness of the church to the lost. In fact, he himself says later on that he was a nobody. We've heard him say that he is nothing but a clay pot. But at the same time that that is true, he desperately wants them to trust his integrity for the sake of the truth and the God of truth. So he says there at the beginning of what we read um, this morning, that therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. This is kind of setting the context of what we're going to be getting to, which I believe is one of the main points that he wants to make in the way that he lives his life. When we see the phrase, the fear of the Lord, J.B. Lightfoot in his Greek studies says that the word phobos here is a fear which should be in every believer as a nervous and trembling anxiety to do right. Because of Christ's victory on the cross, Christians are not to fear people. They're not to fear persecution. They're not even to fear Satan. We are called to show a proper reverence and awe toward God. So the idea of fear here is a deep awe and reverential, in a reverential sense of the coming day of reckoning and accountability before the Lord Jesus Christ at the seat of judgment. Again, believers are not to be terrified at the thought of standing before Christ. This is an aspect of the Christian faith that can be at times difficult to grasp and is to be a major part of who we are, of our attitude, of the way we think. We are to be those who fear the Lord. That is something that will always need to be explained. It is not readily apparent. And we should be willing to be able to explain that. And we should want this to be an integral part of our lives as individuals. William Barclay said this about fear the Lord. He said, it is not the fear and trembling of the slave that's cringing before his master, nor fear and trembling at the prospect of punishment. It really comes from two things. First, it comes from a sense of our own creatureliness, our own powerlessness to deal with life triumphantly, triumphantly. Not the fear and trembling which drives us to hide from God, but fear, or rather fear and trembling that drives us to seek God in the certainty that without his help, we cannot effectively face life. So that is the kind of fear that he's talking about. That's what, what we need to have in our lives. Again, is this recognition that we are unable to live life triumphantly, that we're unable to live life in a way that would please the Lord. Even, in fact, we're even unable to live life in a way that actually brings about true joy in our own life. You know, we, we are, we've been wrecked by sin. We've been ruined by sin. We, we're all very much aware of this. That's why there seems to be not only so much conflict, conflict just comes easily. We easily get irritated with other people. And as we grow, we become easily irritated with fewer people, but we still get easily irritated, right? It's usually the ones that we know better, we, you know, we can hold on a little longer before we get irritated. Unless we know them really well, like your husband or wife, then you get irritated even faster, 
Right? But it's just, it's just, it just comes to us naturally. And so, and so what we, need, we need to recognize that and realize how much we need the Lord in this. And then, of course, what William Barclay does say then, he says, secondly, not only, not only do we fear God from a sense of our own creatureliness, but there should be in us a horror of grieving God. We, we don't want God to be disappointed. And we should have that. And again, we've talked before. I know I've used illustrations of usually it's little kids who they, they want their parents to be proud of them. They want their parents to be pleased. They, they want to do something well, and they want their parents to see it and to appreciate it because they want their parents to be happy in, in them. That's what's most important. That's why you see kids sometimes, you know, even, even if they're in a team sport, if they look in the stands and mom and dad aren't looking, they will stop. I went to my youngest son's t-ball game. Of course, obviously, that was years ago. But he was playing t-ball. This little girl came up to bat. And, you know, she was kind of looking around, and she finally spotted her dad. And then she refused to swing. And her coach is like, you know, go ahead, sweetheart. Try and hit the ball with everything you have. And then all of a sudden she says, Dad, are you watching? <laughs> and, of course, he had the newspaper, and he was doing this. And he put it down because he recognized her voice. And so then, you know, she whacks the ball. You know how it is with t-ball. She swings as hard as she can. The ball goes 18 inches. 40 kids descend on the ball. And, of course, the ball lays there. And she runs to first base, and she slides in. And then she stands up. And then the first thing she does is she screams, Did you see that? And, of course, he didn't say anything, so she said it again. She wanted verbal confirmation. And so he said, he was a little embarrassed. He said, yes, sweetheart, you did good. And she was happy. That's what she needed. And so that's kind of built in with our children. And so there's this idea then that we want our father to be pleased. And so it's a horror to us. It's a horrible thing to imagine that we would disappoint him or grieve him. So fear of the Lord is a very healthy spiritual attitude. Which, again, on the one hand, is an awe of God's greatness and glory. And on the other hand, it is a deep and reverential sense of accountability to Christ. So we want to make sure we don't lose that aspect of it. Because sometimes we're so concerned that people will misunderstand the fear of the Lord that we kind of drop that aspect of accountability and maybe actual fear. That, that a word, we can use the word fear as well as deep respect. They, they can be used interchangeably. You know, most of you know my father was fairly strict. He wasn't mean, but he was strict. And I had a fear of my, of my father. But I wasn't, remember, I didn't, I, when he came home from work, I didn't run into the bedroom and hide under the bed. It wasn't that. I, but there, were, there was this, I had this awe and respect for my dad. And so that's what we are to have for God. And there's an accountability. I knew that I was accountable to him. And so there should even be somewhat of a dread of the discipline that we will reap for violating his holy nature. So one man that I was reading says this about having the fear of the Lord. And I, and I thought this was a great way to put this. Such fear involves self-distrust, a sensitive conscience, and being on guard against temptation. Those are good words for us to to have in our minds, in our vocabulary, about how we ourselves should live. We, we should not trust our own judgment, 
I want my judgment to be shaped and guided by what the Word of God says. I, I want to be sensitive in my conscience to, to the weaknesses of others and to my own weakness. Be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I want to be on guard against temptation. I never want to imagine that I'm above temptation or maybe even above certain temptations. Always be on guard against that. I, we do so out of a fear of the Lord. But Paul goes on and says, but what we are is known to God. I do think it's interesting that he immediately goes there because there can be this idea that we have that, again, the fear of the Lord is always a separation. We, we stand away from God because we're afraid, and somehow we think you know, there's, there's not a relationship there in the sense of what we would consider to be a, a good or a close relationship. It's based on fear. But Paul wants to make sure that that's mended immediately and that we don't go in that direction. He says, so what we are is known to God. The idea that God knows all about Paul. God knows Paul thoroughly through and through. No matter what the adversaries are saying about Paul, Paul knew that he could be confident that God knew the sincerity and integrity of his heart, his motives, and his methods. And so Paul was very comfortable with that. At the same time, along with that, he says, I hope it is also known. In other words, what Paul desires is that the integrity and sincerity of his character is known not only to God, but that it will be known to the saints at Corinth. Because again, remember that his adversaries were attempting to impugn his integrity and his apostleship, his message and his ministry. So he wants them to know his heart as well. So again, you can see, I, I think you can see, or you should be able to see, that again, this is not where he is promoting himself in an arrogant way. He's saying, I want you to know my heart. So why? So they will trust what he says. So they will know that he doesn't have a, another or a hidden agenda. This isn't about him being their boss or being in charge of them or the one who tells them what to do. It's, it's not any of those things. The focus is back on the message and on Christ and who Christ is. And he's explaining it as best he can. And by the nature of the message of the cross, remember that it touches on every aspect of our life. That's why sometimes people make a joke about a preacher, like, well, the message is pretty good until you started meddling. The idea is you can begin to meddle in someone's life. Well, but that's what the Bible does. It addresses every aspect of our life, mostly because every aspect of our life has been tainted by sin. It's been corrupted by sin, and we need the guidance and direction of God. So Paul then immediately jumps to make sure that he kind of sways their thoughts. Well, he says in verse 12, we are not commending ourselves again to you, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is on the heart. He kind of sums up what we've all been going, what he's been going through so far. That he's not basically patting himself on the back. He wants to give them a reason to kind of boast about Paul, but not because, oh, Paul is great. Paul is the smartest. That's not what he's talking about. He wants them to be able to answer those individuals who were attacking Paul. Because those individuals were only concerned about outward appearances. That's their big thing. And so the idea is, yeah, but you don't know Paul. We know Paul. Those things are of no consequence to him. We know what's in his heart. So again, he's not telling them that he's trying to pat himself on the back. He is trying to defend himself only because he's at the risk of being misunderstood. And then he says... For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, before Paul was converted, 
This was his personality. He was passionate. He was sold out completely. He was an individual. Remember I told you that in the Pharisees, he was basically in a group that would have been labeled the trailblazers. These were the guys that they would spend a great deal of time adding to what you see Christ talk about in the, in the Gospels, which is the tradition of the elders or the, the fence laws that we've spoken about before, those things that are uh, written in the Mishnah. Paul was a part of that group. Their concern was to, to dissect the law of God in such a way was to create more commands to help individuals be prevented from breaking the law of Moses. And we've talked before about what the thoughts behind that. that the idea was is that if you break the tradition of the elders, that's a bad thing, but that kind of stops you in your track because you're on your way to break the law of God, and so that was a good thing. The difficulty and problem came in is that they began to equate these fence laws with the law of Moses, and then along with that, there was the hypocrisy of many of the, of the Pharisees who found loopholes and ways to get around that law so that they, could, they would not have to uh, sacrifice anything to follow God. And so there was all these inequities that were taking place there in that whole you know, a relationship and those issues. Paul was the kind of guy that he was so zealous that when they needed someone to aggressively go after Christians because they were worried that Christianity was going to undermine Judaism and they were at the point where they wanted people to be arrested and they wanted people to be beaten and they even wanted people to be killed, the guy they got for the job was Paul. It seemed they didn't spend a whole lot of time looking around and wondering who should we get for this task? Paul. Actually, remember, he was called Saul. Then remember, he had two names, as a lot of Jewish people did back then. They had a Gentile name and a Jewish name. So remember, his name wasn't changed to Paul. He just started going by Paul, which was his Gentile name. But they got Saul. Saul was the guy. And so and we see in the scriptures that Saul was the guy. Man, he was going after him, going from town to town. He didn't care if he was separating families. He didn't care if it was the mother or the dad or both. He'd throw him in, in, uh, in chains or in prison. And then he was the one that when they, when they cornered uh, Stephen, you know, and they were going to stone him to death, they, the, whole, the whole picture there of when they would bring their, clo their outward cloaks and they would place him at the feet uh, of Paul, or really of Saul, and go and kill Stephen, the idea there was they were, they were doing it, in a sense, in honor of him. He, he was giving permission for this to be done, almost a command for this to be done. And so they were going to kill Stephen, because of what all that Saul represented. And so it was, in a sense, done in his name. Done in his name in the name of God. So Saul was that guy. So when Saul was converted, he didn't suddenly become, you know, this little soft little guy. The same zeal, the same fire was there. But now it was being controlled by the truth of the word of God. It was being controlled by the spirit of God. And so he was gung-ho. He didn't care that his life was threatened. He didn't care that he was beaten and left for dead several times. He knew there were times that people were going to come after him. Remember, there's a story in Acts where, where uh, he's gone into the temple and there's this huge uproar and the men of the temple, they're, they're going to kill Paul. I mean, they are coming after him now. And the Roman guard hears that there's this big ruckus and so they don't, want, you know, they don't know what's going on. They just know it's a riot. They come down and they basically arrest uh, Paul at that time, and they're going to take him back to the barracks. And so they were taking him back to the barracks, which is right next there to the temple. And of course, this crowd is following because they want Paul. They want him dead. 
They want this guy, they, they want him out of their life. They want him out of society. They want him off of the planet, basically. And so they're following. And so meanwhile, the commander is talking to Paul, trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And so then Paul, in a sense, stops at the steps. And so everybody could hear and once again gives the gospel. He, he knows a lot of going to get upset. That doesn't matter. He's going to explain, the, and he does it. And of course, they've got to pull him inside and, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. You can read about all those adventures in, in Acts. That was, that was Paul. Paul was gung-ho. And there were times they said he was out of his mind. They even, remember, they even accused Jesus of being out of his mind. And so Paul says here basically that, uh, you know, my adversaries are correct. They've labeled me as mentally imbalanced. But I am without question a full-fledged fanatic for Jesus Christ. Again, Paul was the kind of man who would risk his life to preach a sermon to a riotous crowd that was seeking his life. He's the same kind of man that would go back to the same town where he'd been stoned and left for dead. John MacArthur says this, Look, if I appear to be a man insane, do you understand that I am dealing with a stewardship from God? And if you see me as a cool, calm, patient, and, and gentle, it's because I'm trying to deal with you. But in the end, the matter that is at stake here is the truth. So I'll defend myself because I want to be able to continue to propagate the truth. So what motivates someone to be like Paul? What, what is behind his actions and this zeal that he has? Well, it's in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Again, the word for, it's a term of explanation. When you see the word for, we could ask ourselves, what is being explained? Or why is it being explained? Again, keep in context uh, that Paul is defending his apostleship against false apostles and false teaching. If you were to read this, for the love of Christ controls us, at the ESV. NIV says, for Christ's love compels us. In the King James, it says, for the love of Christ constrains us. So control, compel, constrain, that is the Greek word seneco. The word seneco is a word which means first to hold together. The idea is the law upholds the state or deity upholds the cosmos. Also the meaning of the word seneco, it means to enclose or to lock up, like you would lock up a prisoner or lock up an army behind the walls. In another sense, the word means to oppress. It means to overpower or to rule. The idea of affliction overpowering you or of illness overcoming you or overcoming your emotions. So when you look in the Gospels, we find sometimes that sickness is said to oppress an individual. Uh, sometimes an individual is gripped by fear. Uh, sometimes the meaning is to be claimed or controlled, which is what you see in Acts. And here in 2 Corinthians 5, it is a love of Christ that controls Paul or dominates Paul. So as we go through this, keep this in mind. What Paul is talking about here is not our love to Christ. He's not saying, I love Christ so much, I'm doing this. Because sometimes, and in our usage of that phrasing, the focus is on us. It's almost as if we're saying, not that we're necessarily doing this, but it's almost as if we can say, I love Christ so much. I'm willing to be misunderstood. And there should be some truth in that. But too often the focus can still be on us. It's like we're saying, I'm great. 
So you could say, you see how great I am? My love for Christ is so overwhelming, I'm willing to be misunderstood. So it's almost kind of a you know, backdoor way of bragging. What Paul's talking about here, though, is completely different. He's talking about loves of, of the love of Christ working in us, the love that Christ has for us mastering us, the love that Christ has for us driving us, the love that Christ has for us compelling us. We can kind of understand this, I guess, on a human level in, in this sense, that let's say that, that uh, we see a, a man caring for his wife who is gravely ill, and that requires great sacrifice, great time. There's the mundane things that go on day in and day out. And sometimes we may say, you know, man, he, just, he really loves her. He's committed to her. And that's great. But sometimes you may talk to the individual and their thought is a little different. That her love for me is so great and so overwhelming. I, I have to do this. See, that's what controls me. It's got nothing to do with what I think for her or feel for her. It's her love for me. I have to do this. We, there are times we feel obligated to do things for other people. We do things for our children. It, it's, like, it's without question. Our children will do things for us. It's without question. It's not always just about how much they love us or we love them. It's about this love that exists that, that controls us and compels us. And so here the idea is that you and I, as we understand the love of Christ for us, is so enormous and so majestic and so overpowering that we must live the way we live. My emotions don't come into this. It doesn't matter if I feel good or feel bad. I'm doing this. And I'm doing that because of the love of Christ for me. Jesus says in Luke 12, 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The word distress there comes from the word seneco. If you read it from the Amplified, it means this, I have a baptism with which to be baptized. How greatly and sorely I am urged on, impelled and constrained until it is accomplished. In the Holman translation, it says, and how it consumes me until it is finished. So this is what is motivating Paul. Paul, remember, you know, when Paul said earlier on when he was the chief of sinners, that wasn't just rhetoric. Remember that Paul was a man who had separated families. Remember that Paul was the one who oversaw and approved, really, the murder of this young man, Stephen. Paul, I believe, was greatly burdened with what he had done. When he said he was the chief of sinners, he, he meant that. And so he was, in, in relationship to that, he was blown away by how much that God would love him so much, he would forgive him for that. Remember, it was Jesus who said that those who are forgiven much love much. And really the idea there is that it's not that they've become suddenly these great people who have all this love for someone. It's as if they're being driven by receiving the kind of love they received. That's really what's going on there. I think it should be the same for us, really, is that what drives our love for Christ is really his love for us. It's just done, it's a response thing. I, I, am, I am overcome, I am controlled, I am impelled, I am urged on. Jesus here uses the word seneco to denote his being confined within the limits of a certain course of action. 
It is a straightening that never allows us to deviate from one set of purposes. This is how the love of God motivated and activated the life of Jesus. This is how the love of Christ must motivate and activate our lives. Again, what does he say? For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded, and it goes right back to the gospel, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He did sacrifice his life for me. As a result of that, I no longer can live for myself in good conscience. Now we already know from other scripture, because people want to sometimes exaggerate this aspect of the Christian message, that sound like we, that we're never concerned for anything about ourselves, and the moment you show any interest in anything for yourself, you're somehow a hypocrite and a phony. Because Philippians tells us that, that we are to look out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. There is this idea that we do care for ourselves because the Bible also tells us that no man ever hated his own flesh. All right, so that's a natural part of living. But when it comes to the priorities and what drives me to do what I do, it is the love of Christ which is first. So when we make our decisions, and whatever it is that we do, we do it because of him and what he's done for us. So even when it comes to the commands of God, it is, it is to be viewed that way. So then when a woman is being counseled by her friends that she should divorce her husband, not because he beats her because he doesn't, not because he's cruel to her because he doesn't, but because he just doesn't love her enough, because maybe he doesn't spend any time with her, because her, her married life really is miserable. And so her friends will say, you know, I don't think God wants to be miserable. You should divorce him. And if she says, well, I can't divorce him because God's word says, but it's not just about obeying what the command is. It is because Christ has loved me so greatly and forgiven me of so much, I have to obey what he says. This is what I want to do because the love of Christ puts me on this path, it urges me, it compels me, it's controlling me so that I don't don't go and pursue what may sound wonderful on the other side and I can do some, you know, I can disobey God to get what I'm looking for. No, this is the path. And I'm going to follow that path. Whatever that path may happen to be. For Jesus, it meant the path of the cross, even unto death that he might be raised to the glory of God the Father and so fulfill heaven's redemptive purpose. For us, it must mean the path of the cross unto death, that we might die unto sin and live unto God alone. Paul declares that the only reasonable interpretation of the love of Christ as seen at Calvary is that when he died at Calvary, we also died with him to sin once and for all. And that when he rose from the dead, we also rose to live only unto him. I do think that when you think again about all those situations that are going on in the Ukraine, this is not unique to this place because this has been true in every place that has various kinds of wars of this nature. You will hear stories of individuals, usually of pastors and also people who are just what we would call everyday Christians who at times refuse to leave a very dangerous war-torn area 
because they're urged to help others. They, they do so because they're Christians. They truly have a great love for both believers and non-believers that, that may need their help. And others say, yeah, but, but now it's so dangerous. You, you are risking your life. You're, you're probably going to die in this situation. And there are individuals who, in a sense, if they could find the word to say, it, just, it doesn't matter. I have to do this. And I think for the believer, what, what should be behind that and driving that is, what has Christ done for me? I, I must do this for them. If I don't do this for him, who else will there be? In fact, when you read the stories of what was going on in England during the, the Black Death or the plague, when many of the rich would take their belongings and flee the cities, where even at times many of the rich clergy would grab their belongings and their money and flee the cities. The ones who chose to stay behind, there were a lot of um, nuns and a lot of uh, um, pastors of churches, not knowing what was killing everyone, but continuing to care for them as best they could, knowing that the chances that they would get this, whatever this disease was, and die was very, very high. And yet they stayed. And there's countless stories of individuals who did that. And that was because of their love for Christ. But again, their love for Christ wasn't driven by just emotion. It was they had this, this deep affection because they were just marvelous, wonderful people. They were. But they were transformed by the love of Christ for them. You see, the glory and the honor goes to Christ because he is the true, he's the true source of these things. If you are an individual, or if we know someone here who has a great love for Christ, be assured that their great love for Christ is because of the transforming power of Christ's love for them. They weren't born that way. It's not just some people are that way and some people aren't. This is how all of us are to be. We should want to be a people. You should want to be in your family, an individual who is driven to live in a particular way because of the love of Christ. That would affect all of us. If you are older, you have no right to be cantankerous even though you've lived many years. Because sometimes that's the, that's the theory, right? Well, I've lived long enough, I can be as nasty as I want. No, we should be constrained by the love of Christ. We should want others to know that we are living the way we live because the love of Christ has, has changed us. And you will got, want to go on the opposite end of the spectrum. What well, it should be for our children who've come to know Christ, they should be driven to live for God. It means to live in obedience to their parents. And whatever they say, they do that because Christ has loved them. They then love desperately. Our children are uh, capable of doing amazing things. They're at that age that, that the love of Christ seems to be able to transform them completely. We should expect that and see that. And of course, the ones who model that for the children is always going to be mom and dad. And so that's how you evaluate your home life. Do my children see me controlled by the love of Christ in the way that I treat my wife at all times, even when we disagree? Does the love of Christ control me and urge me to treat my husband a certain way regardless of what he's decided to do or how dumb I think it is? That's what we, we want to be known for. For that, we want that to happen in our life. We want that to be our motivation. And you're not going to get this by listening to a motivational speech. 
Even if you like Tony Robbins, he's not going to go there. We need to be driven by the love of Christ. This is the pathway to which the love of Christ confines us. It should compel us to do nothing but really the work of God. Remember this, the work of God, loving your wife is the work of God. Loving your husband, loving your children, loving your parents, that's the work of God. Loving the stranger is the work of God. As well as reading your word and sharing the gospel and all these other things that we do. This is the path that confines us to do nothing but the will of God. To be driven by this motivation, we need a new vision of Calvary, a deeper understanding of the cross, really a holy baptism, if you were, of his redemptive love. And so it does come back to, for the believer, you and I needing to have a better and a deeper and a more comprehensive understanding of what took place on Calvary. It, it really is about that. The more we understand all that he has done for us, what we really are, what we really were, who he really is, and what he went through on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God, should absolutely transform us. We are familiar with the story of the one who wrote Amazing Grace who used to sell slaves and then lived with enormous guilt but also love for God because of how much he'd been forgiven. We need to be like that and recognize we've been forgiven of so much, so much nastiness and sin in our lives. Whether you've acted all that out or not, we've been forgiven for so much. And so that should then be our prayer for ourselves and then for others, that we would come to much more deeply understand the immense and immeasurable love of Christ so that it will have a profound impact on my life. Because he who loves little believes he's been forgiven for little. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as always, we are so grateful for your word. And Father, we ask that for all of us here, regardless of, of where we are in our lives as Christians, that Lord, that you will break open our hearts that you will remove any obstacle or stubbornness that's within us that prevents us from seeking to fully embrace and understand the love of Christ. We are resistant, Father, by nature against anything that's going to compel us or hem us in. But Father, our hearts and minds and attitude need to be changed so that we will want to be controlled and urged to live in a particular way. Help us, Father, to love you greatly. And Father, we, we need to realize that loving you greatly is, again, going to come because we make ourselves do it. It's going to come because we have a better understanding of your love for us. It's a very difficult concept, Father, to really grasp. But we want to grasp it. So, Father, we pray that you would work on our hearts and change us and soften us. Revolutionize, Father, our understanding and our attitudes. Give to us a great love for you that flows from that. We thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.